Welcome to the Potato Cast, America's number one healthcare podcast named after a cat. My name is Mike Hess. I am a respiratory therapist and public health aficionado. What I'm trying to do with the Potato Cast is to break down some of the more complex and hidden issues in healthcare so that they're a little bit easier to understand so that we can all work together to try and improve them. Healthcare, obviously, a hot topic all the time, but no less so in the middle of a pandemic. So if you like the kind of stuff you hear on the Potato Cast, please feel free to check out the other offerings of my wife, Kelly Becker, nurse practitioner, uh, my daughter, Emma Hess, and uh, soon some other members of my family. You can check us out at patreon.com bestnest. Uh, we have a variety of media covering a variety of different topics, and you can also drop a line and tell us what kind of stuff you'd like to hear. So, again, that's patreon.com slash bestnest. Uh, with that out of the way, on with the show. All right, so if you have, in fact, gone to our Patreon site or if you've come here from some of my other social media links, you likely already know that I have a COPD-oriented Facebook group uh, and YouTube channel called COPD Navigator. Over the six years of doing Navigator, one of the more most frequent things that people ask is, well, this study came out and said this. Why does it conflict with things that have been said before? Um, is it the right answer? Is it the wrong answer? How do we know what to understand? And of course, we have seen that a lot lately during this novel coronavirus pandemic, SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, whatever uh, you're most comfortable describing it as. We've seen a lot of information coming at us. Some of it is very reliable. Some of it makes sense. Others, not so much. And that has really caused a lot of issue, obviously, because now, you know, I was just in... Um, a debate yesterday about whether or not you should wear a mask and it's something that I evolved on too. In the beginning, I didn't know, not knowing how contagious the thing is, you know, not knowing vectors of spread and all that sort of thing. I was a little bit leery about uh, mandating masks and things like that. But as the data came out, as more things came out, or at least I shouldn't say that, I should say as I became more aware of them, as I looked into them a little bit more because people were asking on Navigator, um, it became clear that masks of, of any stripe are an absolutely essential tool to stop the spread of this particular this particular bug. Arguably more of a, a even more of a hot button topic or a very severe, I guess, uh, controversy is the use of hydroxychloroquine, HCQ. You know, we had some studies that said it's going to work. It's going to be great. And then we had studies that said not so much. And then we had more studies that came out and said, yeah, it's great. Most recently where people have been very confused is I believe it was within about the same week, if not even the same day, uh, the World Health Organization, who has admittedly not done a fantastic job of communicating through the pandemic, uh, announced that they were stopping all of their research into the use of HCQ, uh, particularly prophylactically. Uh, before anybody gets sick. Uh, at the same time, um, Henry Ford Health System in my state of Michigan uh, announced a new, a new study that said, hey, we're actually seeing um, people who are sick are actually doing really well uh, in some cases with HCQ. So we had immediately conflicting information 
like I said, almost almost simultaneously, very very tight time frame. And so again, people are saying, well, you know, this is confusing. And then we start getting into, you know, we've talked about cognitive biases and stuff before. Are you going to follow the information that confirms your own biases? Are you going to, you know, seek a, seek the echo chamber, so to speak? The biggest issue is we need to be very careful about the difference between publishing study results and reading things in non-medical publications, and for a variety of reasons. So that's what we're really going to be talking about today. And I'll start with this HCQ study, because one thing that kind of got underreported, I, I did mention it as I was talking about it, but the World Health Organization study was essentially looking at whether hydroxychloroquine could actually prevent you from getting sick or, or getting sicker. If it was early in the course, you know, like I said, I use the word prophylactic dosing. It was trying to figure out if this was something that could be used to prevent worsening illness. And the preponderance of evidence said, no, not really. And in fact, there are certain cases where it can actually cause some health risk. You know, we, we were looking at, I believe, heart rhythm issues and things like that. The Henry Ford study, on the other hand, was specifically looking at people who were very, very sick, requiring intensive care. Could it help them recover? Could it help them after they've gone through this terrible course and, and everything else is kind of failing and they're on the ventilator and all that stuff? And even that study in and, in and of itself is a little bit controversial. You know, if you dive down a little bit deeper, you can see things like, well, I, first and foremost, it was given at a far different time in the disease course than in other studies. You know, again, this is a very advanced, very advanced stages. Um, the people were, were not randomized. So in, in, in the way the most well-designed clinical trials works is... You know, you have a, a control arm, basically, where you're giving somebody um, a placebo or, or something along that, or standard therapy, you know, just kind of depending on what exactly you're studying. And you have an intervention arm, which are the people that you actually give this new treatment to. So you would be looking at, you know, this is where you're giving the drug, or the control arm is where you're not giving the drug. The most well-designed studies, nobody really knows who's in what group until the data collection is over. And, you know, an outside group. This is what we call a double-blinded, randomized, controlled study because everybody is picked at random. You know, they're an outside agency. Usually, they'll they'll try to figure out how do we. So this outside group will look at demographic data and you know, just to make sure that we're looking at all, trying to control for as many confounding factors as we can. We talk, we've talked about that on the show, on the program before too. But the people on the receiving end of the trial uh, and the clinicians that are providing the therapy don't know if somebody is getting the real therapy, the real medication, or if they're getting a, a sham, placebo. You know, again, depend, terminology depends on what actually you're studying. That didn't happen in this case. Um, the physicians were well aware uh, and carefully, actually carefully selected who was going to receive the treatment, uh, which is inherently biased. You know, it, it, and oftentimes you have this effect where if you're doing a thing, you expect to see it work. And so you're going to um, do whatever you can to get some kind of positive benefit out of that. In addition, the study kind of critically uh, excluded people who had not yet been discharged from the hospital. If you work in a hospital, you know that 
you are not a disease course is sometimes really unpredictable. You can have somebody who is improving, 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 and all of a sudden they crash. So by excluding people who are still in the hospital, we don't know, you know, it could be that those people just hadn't crashed yet. You know, that could confound some of the data. We simply don't know. So we're in kind of a crisis mode here where we have to get a lot of this information out as soon as possible. And that has led to certain shortcuts being performed in a lot of these studies. Again, some of it comes down to um, poor study design or rush to publication. You know, we've seen a couple of high profile um, studies, including HCQ, uh, who have had their, who have gone through ostensibly a peer review process and are published by very highly respected journals and then get retracted because upon further review, it's like instant replay in sports. Upon further review, uh, the data collection wasn't so sound. The data itself wasn't so sound. Um, the conclusions were wrong or, you know, math errors. These things happen all the time. Usually they get caught in the pre-publication process or hopefully in some kind of review board or things like that. But sometimes they do get through. And in a pandemic, when we're racing again, literally racing against the clock to try to save more lives because other interventions aren't working, there is this rush to publish so that we can get some of this information out there. Now, so far, we've been talking about professional publications, and you can see that the process is fraught in and of itself. However, then we start getting into the realm of public health communications, where these are where you see on the nightly news or in a paper or on a website, wherever it is, you see, well, a new study came out that said, blah, blah, blah. You know, we, we've got eggs are good for you. Eggs are bad for you. You know, a lot of nutrition stuff, a lot of uh, exercise, you know, what is, we see these kind of things all the time. That, that is health communications. Publication is a little bit different. That's kind of the, the, the core essence of the information that needs to get out there. And then it kind of gets translated because we all know that we don't all speak that same technical language. And we'll, we'll, we're going to dive into that a little bit more too. But we still need to get this information out. Uh, we being clinicians, we still need to get this information out there. And so we rely on the media to do that. However, there are, of course, some really bad issues with that. And again, it's not even necessarily that anybody has malintent or anything along those lines, although that is something that does happen. Um, things get twisted, things get manipulated, out of context, all that sort of thing. But even when there are good intentions, there are some really significant barriers to getting high quality health communications out there. The first being most journalists are not scientists. And that's not a pejorative. That's not a criticism of them. Um, skill sets tend to be very different. And we see that in a lot of society. You know, we see people who in healthcare, we have people who are maybe fantastic physicians. Um, they end up getting promoted and in, into administrative roles where maybe they're not so great at being an administrator because it's a different skill set than being a surgeon or being a family health practitioner. Um, it's a, just a different skill set. It requires different organization. It requires different um, leadership skills, different managerial styles. It, it's just different. It, it's the idea of the Peter principle writ large because you keep getting promoted until you hit a plateau where you're not good enough to advance anymore, which means maybe you're not ideal in that role, but it's really difficult 
in, in, I include myself in this, it's really difficult for a lot of people to have that kind of introspection and say, you know, I really want to step down. I want to, I want to demote. That's not something that is inherently in our psyche. We want to continue in, in most cases, of course, uh, we want to continue striving. We want to continue advancing. We want to get that promotion and all the perks that come with it. And we don't really want to give that up. That can also lead to a little bit of false security that, you know, again, you're, this is not any dig on journalists. I have a massive amount of respect for journalists because I know that's not my skill set and I need somebody else to be able to do that. Um, but a lot of times it comes down to, well, reporting healthcare news is very similar to reporting crime statistics or the latest uh, uh, business opening or city council meetings or that sort of thing. And it's not. Um, unfortunately, in healthcare, we have a lot of highly technical language that is often not used in the same way as it is in the general sense. Uh, and I will, I will throw airborne out there right now because that's one, another thing that uh, World Health Organization has kind of reversed themselves on in the past few weeks. Previously, they had been saying that the coronavirus could not be transmitted airborne. It was not airborne. could not be transmitted through that route. And that led to a lot of confusion because for most people, the phrase airborne or the word airborne means that it's in the air. Whatever it is, it's in the air. To a healthcare professional, there is a difference between airborne and, for example, aerosol. Or uh, when we're talking about personal protective equipment, we talk about um, droplet precautions. That has previous, or we've known that the coronavirus, this novel coronavirus, has been transmitted in that way. It kind of hitches on to water droplets when you cough, when you sneeze, which is why wearing a mask is so important. It keeps that, it reduces how much of that escapes. Um, but to the general public, that's still airborne in many cases. And when it's reported that, well, this group says that it's not airborne, then people are starting to wonder, well, okay, if I just wipe everything down or do I need to wear gloves or, you know, it, it's a lot of confusion. And unfortunately that leads to a lot of chaos because we have a lot of mixed messages out there because we have some groups that are appropriately saying, no, that's not what it means. It's on the droplets. It's not isolated in and, in and of itself. Uh, a particle that's floating around out there, although now we're starting to wonder if maybe it is. But the health communications aspect of it has gotten muddled because on the one hand, you've got a group saying that, yes, it is in the air. No, it's uh, another group saying, no, it's not in the air. And people don't really know what to believe. And so the unknown is frightening. The unknown is intimidating. And so you immediately kind of fall back to where you're comfortable. And so you look for your own tribe to get support and you tend to go with that. And so that's how we got into the point where people are fighting so hard against this mask because it, everybody keeps changing their mind, quote unquote. Uh, and it's difficult to get that trusted input. And again, it's not necessarily that anybody is being mean or inappropriate in any way. It just means that there has been confusion. There's a mistranslation. And that happens a lot. I mean, even when you have 
even when we try to avoid words that have common meaning, the downside to that is we use highly, highly technical language. And we don't always, in, in our direct communications, we don't always check to make sure that there's understanding. And even when we do, a lot of times people will just want, you know, nobody wants to admit that they don't know something in most cases. So they'll just be like, yeah, I understand. And so that has been a tremendous issue um, that I have seen as a, as a COPD advocate is because we have tremendously complex regimens and we usually throw around a lot of the words that we are comfortable with as clinicians because we're used to them and we forget that not everybody has that same context. Not everybody has that same vocabulary. Not everybody has that same level of understanding. So we see issues come up like Things are just not in plain language. Studies have told us that most Americans have roughly a late middle school, early high school literacy level. Seventh to eighth, maybe ninth grade. Just, you know, again, depending on what studies you look at and what specific populations you're looking at. But it's somewhere around late middle school, we'll call it. Unfortunately, if you analyze a lot of the health media that comes out of official sources like CDC, like World Health Organization, like um, Department of Health and Human Services, most of that material is written at a 10th grade level. So you may be able to pick out most of the words or, you know, half the words, but you might be missing out some crucial context. You might be missing out some vocabulary. And there aren't always a lot of places to go for that translation, especially in cases where we're trying to get information out in a hurry, like during a pandemic. But this is, this is not an issue that is specific to the pandemic. It's just another one of these things that has been highlighted or revealed or emphasized. Another critical consideration is that the way we consume media has changed a lot. We have shifted very much from a newspaper, magazine-oriented society to getting a lot of media on the internet. Of course, there are generational differences, and this is inherently, um, I'm kind of falling into some of the traps of, of making oversimplifications and things like that, but many, many people are getting their information online. And I was a little bit stunned. I hadn't really thought about this, but according to the Center for Plain Language, which is another group that has been emphasizing reducing the, the level of literacy needed for health communications and policy documents you know, throughout government, all of these different things. The Center for Plain Language tells us that online reading is far different. And if I'm thinking about it, it this makes a lot of sense. People tend to scan websites um, you're because when you're looking something up, you're looking for a particular nugget of information. And so if you are reading a, a newspaper article, you're probably reading the whole article. But if you're actively seeking something out, you go to a web page and you bop around until you find the nugget that you're looking for. It might be in the middle of a paragraph. It might be down toward the bottom. And so you may have skipped pages of information. You may skip caveats. You may skip a lot of information that you really need to make a solid uh, evaluation of what you're reading. On top of that, uh, the Center for Plain Language tells us you only end up reading about 18% of what's on the page, uh, what's on the web page. 18%. That, that's one in five words. That's one in five sentences. You know, however you want to break that down, 
it is a very small amount of the entire torrent of information that's coming at you. And it's not always clear which 18% is the crucial 18%. And that leads to a lot of bad communication. In addition, web pages have a lot of other, we'll call them distractors. I mean, we've got pop-up ads, we've got solicitations, we've got animations, we've got all these other things that are going on that are inherently distracting that may, can make you lose your train of thought. Uh, if you have a relatively low level of literacy, they can be very distracting. They can be very confusing. They can lead you to not chunk the, the data properly. You know, a lot of times we don't even read the individual letters. We will, we have come to recognize the general shape of a word. And I, I was reading about this as I was trying to put together some, some other documents. Uh, for example, the ampersand. It is technically more difficult to read a document that has ampersands instead of the word and spelled out. Because again, and is one of the most common words in the English language. And we have learned to recognize that shape, whereas we may not have seen the ampersand as much. And so it takes us a second to actually interpret that character. It takes us longer to interpret that character than it does the three characters of the word and. Because in our mind, that word has become a glyph unto itself. And we can just kind of process it, skip over it. We don't even necessarily read it. We just know it's there. If you have, though, a reading comprehension problem or a learning uh, difficulty, sometimes you may be reading each letter individually and then assembling the word as you go. And if you're not writing to that capacity, then you're going to be skipping over stuff. If you have hidden links or if you're using weird fonts or, you know, those weird um, alphabet characters that look like they're all over the page or anything like that, those are going to cause issues for your, for your audience. Now, a lot of times, you know, the more respected publications and things like that aren't going to be using those gimmicks. But again, this is another one of those factors. You know, all of these things are working together. All of these issues, you know, whether it's reading level, whether it's vocabulary, whether it's how the word is designed on, on the web page or how it's highlighted or any of these things, these are all things that work together. Sometimes they go really well. Sometimes you may be missing one or two and still be getting the message across to a certain degree. Uh, and sometimes they just all collaborate to create kind of a communications disaster. So the final confounder to all this is you really do have to be careful about the source. I know it's always a touchy issue to be talking about what media source has what bias and who's liberal and who's conservative and who's sensational and who's objective and dry. A lot of the time you can get two wildly different conclusions from the same paper. You can use that same pool of data and depending on how you parse out the caveats and parse out all the other the issues with it, you can actually use it to attack, so to speak, both viewpoints or two different viewpoints. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but that can be, that's where the manipulation factor comes in. And so if you have a study that says, for example, HCQ works great, but has a lot of side effects. If you have a vested interest in promoting hydrochloroquine, then you are going to latch on to that bit that says that it works great. And maybe not mention the fact that there are, there's a pretty big but to that. If you are very vehemently against it, you might focus specifically on 
the fact that there are a lot of adverse effects without mentioning that maybe there are certain people that this could work very well for. So you have to really look at the underlying, you have to look at who wins from the particular article, who's going to benefit if this becomes the prevailing narrative, uh, because that inevitably colors how the article is written and honestly how it should be consumed, because you have to assume that every article has some kind of bias to it. And the trick is figuring out exactly what that bias is and whether it's enough to change the message. So how do you work your way through these issues? How do you separate the wheat from the chaff and how do you find the good articles out there? Well, there are basically four things that you have to consider. First off, you have to consider the source. I mean, it's the basics, but it always bears repeating. You have to figure out the reliability of the source. Is this a respected document? Is this, uh, you know, again, a national publication that has a reputation that they're probably not going to risk over garbage news? Is it a publication from a professional organization or a longstanding advocacy group? Is it a reliable source? You also have to bear in mind when you're considering the source, you have to consider the context of the source. You know, again, if you're reading something in a medical journal, it's probably going to be written for healthcare professionals, and it's probably going to be written in, again, a very particular way. Um, for example, they are rarely definitive. You will almost inevitably, to the point where it's kind of a, a joke or an academic meme, so to speak, come across the terminology further research is indicated in a lot of these publications. Because when you are doing new research, particularly if it's a novel cure, a novel therapy, something like that, you have to start with a small sample size. For safety reasons, for ethical reasons, for practical reasons, you have to start with a relatively small amount of people. Sometimes you can extrapolate out and scale up the results to match an entire population. Most of the time, you can't. We try to, but we really can't. And as we grow our sample size, as we do additional research that has been indicated by the positive initial study, as we do that, we discover that there are populations where maybe this intervention works even better. There are populations where it doesn't work at all. And then there's our original assumption population. But we don't know that until we have a big enough group of people. So you always have to be careful. Again, if this is a, a, a formal medical journal, you have to be careful to look at sample sizes and what they're actually concluding. If they're saying that this is promising, if they're saying it works, uh, I would always be careful about absolutes. We will usually find a group later on where this absolute is absolutely garbage. Which leads us into our next criteria. What is the claim? And here, what they call the smell test often applies. You know, if it, if it smells fishy, then it's probably a little fishy. Is the claim too good to be true? Do we have a quote-unquote miracle cure for whatever it is? We've seen that thrown around a lot. Is it too good to be true? And is it preying on our optimism or conversely, our desperation for something. You know, again, in the pandemic, we've seen a variety of things that we are so desperate for an effective treatment that we're really excited to latch onto it. I've seen it with HCQ. I've seen it with um, systemic steroids. I've seen it with inhaled steroids. 
we keep looking for the silver bullet. And, you know, again, this is not specifically pandemic related. We see this all the time before and we'll see it all the time after. But is the claim too good to be true? In addition, does it completely upend our understanding of how stuff works? I guess if you're looking at maybe a a physics journal or something like that, maybe that happens a lot. It seems to happen a lot, although I will admit uh, to only a cursory understanding of physics at best, especially when it gets down into that quantum weirdness stuff where they just put quantum in front of everything, as they say in Ant-Man. But in healthcare, we have a general understanding of how stuff works. And we're constantly refining a lot of that. We're, We're polishing it. We're making things work better. But if a study comes out that really kind of upends, or I shouldn't even say a study, if we're reading an article that really is counter to our general understanding of how stuff works, we should probably look into that a little bit more. We should be a little bit more careful about how we're interpreting that publication. Um, a good example of that was a few years back when there was a um, um, long-term supplemental oxygen study published published in the New England Journal that the, the top-line takeaway in a lot of um, non-clinical, non-official publications, but even, even, you know, healthcare websites, was saying that supplemental oxygen doesn't really help survival in COPD, for example. And that was pretty revolutionary because for a very long time, we've known that really about the only interventions we have that affect um, longevity, time till death, are tobacco cessation and um, oxygen, maybe with a little bit of pulmonary rehab thrown in there. So it really kind of upended things. But if you, if you dug into the, the, the article itself, you discovered that it was really a subset of people that didn't help supplemental oxygen. But that was one of the conclusions that was drawn, and that was a a kind of a big deal. So that's what a lot of groups ran with, a lot of publications ran with. And again, if, if it seems too good or too odd to be true, there is a distinct chance that it is. Our third thing that you have to be careful of is, of course, tone. And this one can be really tricky because the, the stereotypical example is looking at the tone of a tabloid newspaper uh, to the tone of a regular newspaper, a, your, your local paper or a New York Times or L.A. Um, is it L.A. Times? I think it's L.A. Times. Miami Herald. You know, your, your established formal papers. Obviously, being written for a different audience, the tabloids tend to be a little bit more extreme. They have a little, they have a particular tone to them, just like an academic journal does. That you know, they have their own memes and their own shorthand and things like that. Um, but if you're coming across an article that is written like a tabloid article, again, maybe double check that one a little bit. Don't necessarily take it at face value because maybe there are some shortcuts that are that are that have been taken in the writing of that. We can also look at YouTube. YouTube is a fantastic equalizer for a lot of communications. Um, I have my own YouTube channel, COPD Navigator, to go along with the, with my Facebook group. So if, if I can have a YouTube channel, pretty much everybody can. We're all carrying around cameras these days. Uh, it's very easy to upload very small videos and, or even larger videos, things like that. And there's a different tone there too. And this is where it gets really tricky because if you look at 
um, you know, some of the things that I've done. If you look at somebody like a ZDog MD, um, again, we're taking a lot of these, these topics and trying to make them a little bit more social, a little bit more casual tone, a little bit easier to understand, hopefully, for a wider audience. But the fact that it's casual can kind of blend in sometimes with people who maybe don't have a solid understanding of a particular concept or have an agenda that they're trying to get out there to be a little bit more popular. Um, the anti-vaccine movement comes to mind. There's a lot of informal stuff out there that can look just like a polished, nice, well-researched piece. Then there's stuff that, you know, the, the flaming conspiracy heads out there, you know, again, maybe if this kind of goes back to the, the, the claims, if they're too good to be true or too odd to be true and they're coming in a weird style, then be careful. See if you can back it up with something on one of the more formal sites like uh, uh, Med, MedPage today or the aforementioned and somewhat controversial uh, WebMD. Um, you don't necessarily want to rely on, as they say, Dr. Google, but it can be a good thing to verify. Always trust, but verify. The last thing is, you know, again, some, the last thing is kind of the first thing that you have to look at too. It's the last thing to look out for. I kind of struggled to identify or, or to title, um, but it's context, I guess, is the, the easiest way to do it. I thought about going with subtone, but really it's context. It's the context of the publication. In Star Trek Discovery, there's a line uh, that's talking about how context is for kings because you're not going to get the full picture unless you understand the context. And again, this can be really tricky too. When we're looking at media, media absolutely loves to be first. They love to have the breaking news. They love to have the scoop, all of that kind of stuff. And that goes in with health media too. If you can be the first to report some kind of new breakthrough, then that's what's going to pick up and no pun intended, go viral. And that you're going to be the ultimate source. And that's going to translate into a lot of positives for your organization. So they try to get to be first. And we see that and that's an outgrowth of, of internet culture too. There was a lot of people who just wanted to be first to comment on a blog or what have you. But as we discovered, sometimes first isn't always best. As we were talking about, when you have a small sample size, you might not be able to extrapolate all that stuff. And you may end up having to retract or clarify. And unfortunately, that gets lost in the, in the sauce a lot. Certainly more so than a breaking news item. Also, you know, we, we can look back to that, uh, um, that oxygen study and we see that a lot of times it's all about the hook. It's all about the, the, the clickbait, so to speak. It's all about those things that are going to get the eyeballs to the page and drive up ad revenue or, again, try to get some of those positive intangibles out there for the organization. And it's not always so much about the caveats or the context or anything like that. It's just about getting that interaction. And so all of these things working together, again, they, they do overlap a little bit. There's some confusion. There's some uh, melding. You ought, have to, however, make sure that you're contemplating all of these as you are evaluating your healthcare site. And if you are a health communicator, uh, as I try to be, they're all things that you have to consider as you are shaping your message and as you are shaping your content. These are critical things that you, you, we have to be able to provide these things at an understandable level so that 
they're catchy, so that they're interpretable, so that people can actually figure out what the real news is from, I hate the, the cliche, but from the fake news. It's really difficult to tell them apart these days, but it makes it even more critical on the part of content creators to make more of an effort to drive that home. All right, so hopefully we've learned a little bit more about the issues inherent in health communications and why we're having such an issue with many of them today. Um, I would invite anybody to let me know how I did with that with this explanation because it's all about the continuous process improvement. Uh, also, let me know um, what other topics you might like to hear. You can hit me up at potatocast at copdnavigator.net. Uh, drop me a line anytime. You can also find me on a variety of social medias. Just search for MyCast or COPD Navigator. Or again, you can always contact us at patreon.com slash bestnest and maybe throw us a little bit of support so that we can keep creating what is hopefully high quality content. So until next time, my name is Mike Cass. This has been the Potato Cast, America's number one healthcare podcast named after a cat. Hopefully we'll get Potato herself on here before too long and get a little uh, cameo. Um, but until then, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, keep breathing lightly.